Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. But actually, the much more important thing is the ability to listen. Uh, and what you find in those places at the edge of life is people with these extraordinary, agonizing, haunting stories to tell who so often just want to be heard, who want to know that there's somebody somewhere out there who cares about them and what happens to them. Um, and one of the most extraordinary things in the world is when you can hold out a hand and help them back from the edge. What's it really like to be in the police, right away from PC level on the street all the way up to Chief Superintendent? Well, we're going to speak to John Sutherland, who is the author of the new book, Crossing the Line, Lessons from a Life on Duty. His career is so varied. He's been a negotiator. He's seen domestic violence. He has seen the worst of humanity, but also the best. So let's get into this. We're going to speak to John Sutherland on Stop and Search. You're listening to Scooby's Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with the UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. So thank you for joining us on Stop and Search. And if you want to follow John Sutherland on Twitter, go to at Police Commander. And if you want to follow any of the work that we do at UK Leap, Twitter at UK Leap, Instagram at UK Leap, also our Facebook at UKLeap.org and our website is UKLeap.org. So what are we going to speak about with John? Well, he is someone that's literally talked people down from a ledge. We're speaking about a movie style level career here, but he did it. This was real. This is very, very real to him. We're also talking about crime, terrorism, sexual offences, drug abuse, drug addiction, domestic violence. There's a lot to get into. So let's get straight into this. This is John Sutherland, Crossing the Line, Lessons from a Life on Duty. I'm joined by John Sutherland, who has written the most brilliant book of Crossing the Line, Lessons from a Life of On Duty, because you have had a pretty fascinating career, I think it's fair to say. So let's start off, if it's all right, John, by introducing you and what you've done within your career within the police force. Well, your first thing to say is thanks ever so much for having me on. It's a, it's a real honour to be doing this with you. Um, yeah, I, I often introduce myself to people by saying uh, I'm, I'm a husband to one, I'm a dad to three. And uh, for more than 25 years of my life, I, I served as an officer in the Met Police. Um, I retired 
two years ago and I've just turned 50. And I said it before we went on, but you, you really don't look 50. We're, in, we're currently in lockdown, so we're doing this remotely. We should have been doing this as an event, which would have been lovely. Um, but how's lockdown treated you? Because I'd imagine it's been a fairly interesting time. Yeah, well, we've got three school age girls. Um, they're all at secondary school. Um, so we've we've got the adventure of homeschooling uh, and trying to combine that with the rest of life. But uh, they're amazing, our girls. And my wife is some kind of living saint. Um, and actually, you know, we're doing all right. I I would... I would regard myself as, or regard us as a family, as, as amongst the fortunate ones. We've, we've got a roof over our heads, we've got food in the fridge, and, and so far we seem to be in fairly good health. I think that really comes across in your book, actually, the way that you do really draw from the heart, and, and not in any kind of bad derogatory way, but obviously you're very thoughtful, because that comes across as well, but you can tell that you've had the career that you've had because you've seen domestic violence, you've seen the worst in humanity, and yet you've come out the other side of it looking quite often for the best in humanity. That must be a strange balance for you to have been through that career. It's, I'm, I'm very much a heart and soul person. I, I, I think that usually comes before the head for me. Um, uh, policing for me absolutely was an affair of the heart and the soul. Um, uh, and I often talk to people about the painful privilege of being a police officer. Uh, you know, the fact is, as a copper, you, you see all of life and all of death and everything in between. Um, uh, and it's incredibly painful, but it is also a privilege. Uh, there were just so many occasions during the course of my career where I found myself in what you might describe as the hurting places. But, but I was there because I'd been invited in, because I'd been welcomed in, because of the uniform I wore, because of the job I did. And you just, you have those opportunities, the privilege of sitting alongside people on, on the worst days of their lives. Uh, and in some cases on, on the last days of their lives. And it, it would be impossible to do the job of a police officer for any length of time and, and remain untouched by the things that you've seen, the things that you've done. I've... I've emerged with some bumps and bruises, but but I counted it all a privilege. And that really leads us into what Crossing the Line is about. It, you've done it chapter by chapter of the various different social problems that are going on in this country and the world in, in general. And you've done it from a head and heart position, but woven in the, the necessary facts and figures and all that we need to understand about what's going on in society. So what led you to writing this book? Was it... Did you feel compelled? That's a really good choice of word because absolutely, yeah. the the book is The book is a cry of the heart. Uh, I, I remember my last operational job um, was as the borough commander for Southwark in South London. Best job I ever had, and I've had some really good ones. But but Southwark is uh, it's a brilliant place to work. It's a pretty challenging place to work. And uh, I remember sitting in my office one day and, and I was being given an update about a particular crime uh, and it was a horrendous crime. Um, it was the, the rape of a teenage boy and it was a stranger rape. The suspect was another teenage boy. Uh, and in and of itself, it wasn't that it was worse than other crimes I'd dealt with previously. 
Um, you know, the rape of a boy is no worse than the rape of a girl. It, it wasn't so much the specific case. It's just, I think, that after more than 20 years in policing, I'd, at that point in time, I was kind of full to the brim of everything that I'd seen and everything that I'd heard and everything that I'd dealt with. And I remember sitting there thinking, I, I am seeing stuff and I'm involved in stuff that most of the rest of the world has got no idea about. And it's not that the rest of the world doesn't care, it's just that the rest of the world doesn't know. And I sat down and I remember, and this is, this is going back seven years now, um, but I remember sitting there and saying to myself, you know, have I got some sort of a duty to, to tell the world outside of policing about the world that policing inhabits and reveals? Uh, I wondered whether it was my responsibility to, to tell people what I knew to, to talk about the things that I'd seen. So in a sense, I think probably the, the, the seeds of this book were sown seven years ago and, and in the 20 years before that, that I was doing the job. The, the first line of crossing the line is, I want you to see the things that I've seen. And it really does come across within the book how much of an impact this has had on people like you and you, you make that case as well it's not just you it's it's all of your colleagues on the front lines um you reference Neil Wood's colleague of mine in Leap UK um throughout the book and also the fact that there are still scenes and pictures that rest heavily with you even to this day isn't there I, I mean I guess it's inevitably the case you know there are faces and there are places that I will carry with me for the rest of my days I, I you know I'm sitting here now in South London the first murder scene I ever went to was about two miles down the road from where I'm sitting now I was a PC based at Brixton police station and and this happened almost 25 years ago uh, and yet I could recount to you now in forensic detail what happened that day what what I saw and what I did and I guess fundamentally how I felt um, this this stuff stays with you there's there's no way that it couldn't I'm definitely going to go back and read your previous book Blue because I need to learn more about your origins and the origin story of John Sutherland is definitely something I'm now interested in because the way you the way you've done this book, as I said, you've done it in chapters of all the things that we need to address. So we're going to kind of go over a few of these now. The first one is is something that potentially Britain is quite blind to and possibly even willfully blind, which is alcohol and just the, the cost that it has on society, a literal cost in society. I just read the figures out to my other half and... I think you, if in the book you say that it's around about 52 billion a year is alcohol-related harm. How are we getting that so wrong in society? And this is something that the police must see on a daily basis. Well, I, I mean, the first person I ever arrested in my career in probably the first week of my career was, was a drunk. He was, he was a flat-out drunk, a man who'd fallen out of the bottom of life. I, I describe him in the book. And, uh, and, and for the next 25 and a half years, alcohol was an ever-present theme in so much of what I and my colleagues dealt with. You know, people got drunk and they fell over and they hurt themselves and they ended up in hospital. People got drunk and they had their phones and laptops and purses stolen. 
people got drunk and they got into fights. Uh, and, and so alcohol lay at the heart of so many of the harms that we were encountering. And of course, as a police officer, you're on the front line of all of it. Um, you know, I remember vividly my first pub fight. Um, uh, you remember the role that alcohol played in so much of the, the crime, the violent crime in particular, and the antisocial behaviour that you encounter, you know, in the town centre on a Friday night uh, after the football on a Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, whenever it's being played. Um, and I make the point both in Blue, my first book, and in this one, that, that the truth is if alcohol was invented now, it would be illegal. And it's interesting that you say that you witness pub fights, football fights, because you make the point within the book that whenever there's a crowd, a gathering of people, even down to you know memorials like Diana's and things like that, chances are there's a police officer somewhere lurking around in a good way. But it's a thankless task, I'd imagine. You've, you've probably had your fair share of abuse for keeping the peace, ironically. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I'm, I'm not, I, I never have been, and I never will be a, a blind apologist for the job I used to do. You know, policing is a thoroughly imperfect response to an imperfect world. You know, sometimes coppers get things terribly wrong, both individually and collectively. And when that happens, because we're police officers, the consequences can be disproportionately damaging. I mean, I absolutely think that society has every right to expect higher standards of police officers than, than it does of anyone else because of the promises that we took, because of the powers that we were given and because of the position that the officers occupy in society. So I don't mind people holding policing to account. As a society, I don't think we should ever get tired of holding policing up to the light. But, but of course, as a serving officer for more than 25 years, I, I, I saw that bad stuff, but I saw overwhelmingly the, the endless, extraordinary stuff. You were, you were alluding to it earlier on. As a, as a police officer, you get to see the worst of things and the worst of people, but you absolutely get to see the best of it all too. And for more than 25 years, I, I worked with heroes. And, you know, there's an awful lot of noise and nonsense spoken about policing, particularly by politicians and in the press. Uh, and I've often said that, you know, when you strip away that noise, the heart and soul of what the job is, is it's remarkable. The job of a police officer is to save lives, to find the lost, to bind up the broken boned and the broken hearted, to protect the vulnerable and to defend the weak, to step into harm's way in defense of complete strangers. And, and sometimes in the case of Keith Palmer and so many men and women who went before him, sometimes it's to pay the greatest price of all. And I think sometimes as a society, we lose sight of the debt of gratitude that we owe to police officers um, for the risks that they face and the sacrifices that they make on our behalf. But I'll never be a blind apologist. I don't think we should ever shy away from saying when policing's got it wrong. It's interesting that you, you mentioned the fact that the first arrest you made was someone that was drunk and, and the way you described them, you know, they, they'd fallen out of the, the, the bottom rung of the ladder of, of life. And But throughout the book, you really do word things in a, in a really compassionate way of understanding that if someone has had the experience of alcoholism or drug addiction, it's because of a myriad of reasons. Yeah, it's It's... A symptom of life as opposed to it being their own fault and I think that 
you are someone that's got a, a very big awareness of compassion. Am I right? Well, I mean, I hope so. Um, I, I think the point is that we've we've all got a story to tell, every single one of us. Uh, and the easiest thing in the world is to define a person by their behaviour or by their circumstances and to go no further. Um, and, and the book, I suppose, it, it, it's an attempt absolutely to describe what's happening. But I think more than that, it's an attempt to describe why it's happening. So I, I have a, a friend who is a recovering alcoholic. She's been sober for years and years now. She's absolutely amazing. And she's a retired police officer and she does some work uh, in prisons with recovering alcoholics. I mention her in the book. And um, she describes addiction, in her case alcoholism, as an attempt at self-repair. I've got that very written down here. Uh, which I just think is such a, a beautiful way of... So, you know, we live in this kind of impatient, flat-out society where we're rushing from one place to the next, lockdown aside. But um, I, I'm not sure how often we, we pause to think about what's really going on in people's lives. So take this guy who I arrested in the spring of 1993 outside the McDonald's in Victoria Street. You know, the easiest thing in the world is just to write him off as, as an alky. He's, you know, he smells of urine and, and his face is covered with scabs and scars and he smells and, and, and he's not pleasant to deal with. And the easiest thing in the world is, is to define him by those things. But, but the problem is, and again, I, I try to articulate this in the book, that, that as we step over these people as we're walking down the road, we're in danger of forgetting their humanity and, and, and of forfeiting some of our own. And I, you know, I, I don't want to make myself out to be anything virtuous. Um, I, I just think that one of the most important things that we can ever try to do before we pass judgment on anyone is to try and find out what their story is. And so this man outside McDonald's in the book, I wonder out loud at what his story might be. Why, why did he start drinking in the first place? Because it's only when we start to ask those questions and when we start to begin to understand why people are the way they are, why they're behaving the way they are, it's only when we start to understand those things that we've got any chance of mending them. I, I wrote down two quotes from the alcohol chapter. One of them was that very one. I think it's, it's just beautiful, isn't it? that addiction is an attempt to self-repair. I just, I just love that. And the other one I wrote down is that you personally can't think of a single circumstance or situation where alcohol made things better. In fact, pretty much the opposite is true. Yeah. And as someone, we just before we, we started recording, I said to you that I was a gigging musician for 10 years. I was a spectator on alcoholic crowds. And it is a strange thing to behold. Both UK, and we get a lot of listeners in the United States and North America, we've, we've almost got a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card for alcohol, haven't we? Why is that? I, I think purely and simply because it's been around forever. So, so it, it wasn't, you know, it's not one of those within-living-memory discoveries. Alcohol has always been there, and, and it's, it, it's a part of and a fact of life. And I'm, you know, I'm not a Puritan about it. I mean, these days I don't drink, but that's for medical reasons rather than sort of ideological reasons. 
you know, back in the day, I, I enjoyed a drink after work with my colleagues. I enjoyed a glass of wine with my wife over dinner. Back in the day, I'm sure I had one too many on, on one too many occasions. So, so it's not being about being a Puritan about it. I, I, I'm not a kind of prohibitionist. Uh, but it is, a, it is about just recognising and understanding the harm done. And, you know, as you've pointed out, we're talking during lockdown. And there's some fairly alarming figures been in the news just in the last week or two about the levels of alcohol consumption going up, um, particularly for those who already had a problem with drink. Uh, and it's so, you know, for those for whom lockdown triggers anxiety or loneliness or depression or whatever it might be, you know, the tendency is to try to self-medicate with booze. Um, and ultimately that just doesn't work. It, it makes things worse, not better. And it certainly does lead us to a chapter quite far down the line in, in your book. But unfortunately, as we see quite often with, with alcohol, domestic violence goes hand in hand as well, especially potentially in circumstances like this. I'd, I'd imagine that certainly we've had concerns within late UK about the domestic violence and, and potentially what is happening as we speak. Has it been something that's been going through your mind? Very much so. Um, and it's, it's interesting, it's really, I, I know you get this, um, but it, it seems sometimes that some in the mainstream media don't. You know, coronavirus is not causing domestic violence. Violent people cause domestic violence. So, so the, the pandemic isn't causing it, but what it is doing is exposing it. It's, it, it's kind of bringing it up to the light. Um, and we've seen that the, the domestic violence murder rate has gone up. Uh, we've seen uh, that the calls to domestic violence hotlines have gone up very significantly. And um, we know that domestic violence is one of the most underreported crimes in all of society, um, precisely because its victims are so vulnerable. I mean, I, my view about DV is absolutely unequivocal. You know, based on all of my years of professional experience, um, I regard it as the single greatest cause of harm in society. Um, uh, and it, it would be interesting to know, for example, how many people uh, who end up with a drink problem in later life experienced or were exposed to domestic violence earlier in their life and in their childhoods. Um, there, there are a number of the chapters in the book where you can make connections between things. People start drinking, in many cases people start taking drugs as, as a response to trauma. Uh, and often as a response to trauma experienced in childhood. And so much of the trauma experienced in childhood is as a consequence of domestic violence that's gone on in the home environment. I was going to say, this is a really good point you make there, because if it's not too crude of me to say so, but because your book is so is so real and factual, it could almost be a Quentin Tarantino movie in the sense that it does all link up, because what we're talking about here in domestic violence, it will lead on to a chapter we're going to speak about down the line, which is... Um, youth violence and how mm. those two things are connected absolutely but it's it is the, the domestic violence chapter in the book is shocking you know there's no getting around it you make the point that two women are killed by a partner or a former partner every week that I mean I I did know that but to have that brought back to me in that kind of clarity it just again just literally sends shivers down my spine and, and that's just in this country. So, so two women killed by a current or former partner every week. In addition to that, Refuge estimate that three women every week take their own lives 
as a consequence of being subjected to domestic violence. Um, and then you add up the, the serious assaults um, and every other kind of abuse. I mean, it is, it's terrorism on an epic scale. It, it is in its own way a disease of pandemic proportions. And, and that's why I regard it as the single greatest cause of harm in society. I, I, if you were to trace back so many of the problems outlined in the book to their roots, um, domestic violence would be a recurring factor in the overwhelming majority of cases. And, you know, the, the victims, and I don't just mean the immediate victims and survivors, the, the primary, you know, anyone can be a victim of DV, but it, the majority of them are women. I'm not just talking about the adult women who are subject to the violence and the abuse themselves. I'm also talking about the children who are growing up in the homes where it's happening. Um, you know, domestic violence is one of those things that has the capacity to destroy the lives of every single person it touches. And it can go on for generations. You're very good at addressing root causes throughout the whole theme of the book in Crossing the Line. So to really put you on the spot, what could we do more to get to the root causes of domestic violence? And the fact that domestic violence is the root cause of so many other societal ills, it is surely important that we do put emphasis on getting to the root causes of this. Absolutely. And, and I, the first thing to say, and again, this is a recurring theme in the book, we need a long-term approach. This country needs a 20-year domestic violence plan. And, you know, both culturally and politically, we live in hugely impatient times. I made reference to it earlier. We're just in one great big hurry. Um, and, you know, we want stuff fixed by next Friday. And that just isn't going to happen in relation to any of the challenges that I set out in the book. But, but domestic violence, most of all, when you're dealing with something that has been generations in the making, we need to recognise and understand that it might just take generations to fix. So the first thing is that it's got to be a long-term plan. The second thing is that we've got to recognise the extent of the vulnerability of the victims and survivors. Now, the, these, these are, as I say, primarily women. They're, they're not... I mean, it's, it's so easy to be pejorative, to, to blame victims for their circumstances. These are extraordinary women, brave and resourceful, finding ways to survive in circumstances that are beyond comprehension for most of us. But we need to understand um, why they don't just leave, for example. And you so often hear that said, you know, you're in an abusive relationship. Why don't you just leave? Well, the answer's as complicated as life itself. You know, if I put myself in the shoes of the victim, the first thing is, well, if I leave, where do I go? Second thing, crucially, vitally important, if I leave, what happens to my children? Thirdly, if I leave, what am I gonna do financially? So many victims are dependent on their abusers for financial support, as well as for a roof over their heads. Um, you know, the, the, and so in taking this long-term approach, we've got to dig much deeper inside to understand the circumstances that victims and survivors find themselves in. The flip side, of course, is that we've got to deal with the perpetrators. Absolutely, we need to recognise and acknowledge that we have a problem with violence in society. 
and particularly we have a problem with male violence in society. Uh, and that's an uncomfortable truth for a lot of people to hear. But, you know, again, it's, it's not an opinion I have, it's, it's, it's the undeniable experience of my professional life. Um, so that 20-year approach has to, on the one hand, support victims and survivors and understand their circumstances. On the other hand, it has to challenge perpetrators and, and uh, seek to change their behaviour for good. Um, so it's, it's got to be a really holistic approach but that gets right down to the roots and the heart of the problem. This is where it's quite tricky for someone like me to to conduct this this conversation because you've now spun off into so many areas that I want to touch upon all, all at once because, as we just said, because the chapters do all link into each other, we've touched upon youth violence, which we, we're definitely going to get into. But one of the aspects I want to speak about before we get there is that you're very clear about the the relationship between policymakers and the media and society and how that all interacts and you 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 make the point that you're not partisan but you can be critical about certain points of policy making and how they can be quite short-termism how they do pander to media headlines as opposed to get into any kind of root cause and you draw some brilliant examples within the book as well can you speak about that just momentarily about what the problems we do face when we when we try and have big conversations about policy making and what we need to do what goes wrong within those processes? It's, I, I mean, in a sense, it's a million-dollar question. Um, although I think in one sense there's a, um, there's a fairly straightforward answer to it. So, you know, there are the ten chapters on ten big challenges we face as a society. Um, and in relation to each of those, take domestic violence or alcohol or drugs, you know, if you go to the expert practitioners and indeed the people with lived experience, the combination of those two things. So if you go to the people who really know what they're talking about, on the whole, there's a degree of consensus about what needs to be done. Uh, you know, I, uh, of all the people I know who have an understanding of domestic violence, broadly speaking, there's a degree of consensus about what needs to be done. Same with youth violence, which we'll come to. So the problem is not with the expert understanding of the situation. The, the problem is with the translation of that into policy and reality. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think we have a challenge that we face with both the political culture uh, and the media culture um, that persists in our society. And as I say, I'm not partisan. I, I don't belong to any political party. I owe no one my allegiance. Um, but I do think that we have a responsibility to hold the government of the day to account, whoever they are, whoever they might be, whichever party they might represent. And, uh, and I think, broadly speaking, we know what needs to be done. The problem is that we don't do it. And there are four reasons that I sort of settle on towards the end of the book why that might be. One is we just think it's going to take too long. And as we've alluded to, we're impatient. Number two is we think it's going to cost too much and we're at the back end of a decade of austerity where the heart and soul has been ripped out of the public sector and, you know, in the case of policing, we're now scrabbling to undo the harm that's been done, trying to re-recruit some of the officers that, that were cut over the last 10 years. Um, we've got to be prepared to invest money. The third thing is we just think it's going to be too difficult and 
and we don't like difficult. Difficult is difficult. And the fourth reason is that oftentimes the people who are most affected by the issues that we're talking about um, live in a world that's very different to the one inhabited by the power brokers and the policy makers and the purse holders. This stuff doesn't tend to happen to people like you and me. So, you know, uh, we talk about the later chapter on um, child abuse and uh, talk a little bit about child trafficking and talk about the circumstances in Rotherham or indeed sex slaves who are trafficked in from Eastern Europe. I mean, these, these are people well off the Westminster track. Those most affected are the ones least connected to power. Uh, and I do often think that, that were the victims of human trafficking or knife crime or domestic violence, children or family members of the establishment, uh, I think the response would be a very different one. But fundamentally, it doesn't happen to people like us. It's gonna take too long, it's gonna cost too much, and it's just too difficult. And I, I finished the whole book off with, with a quote that I've sort of adapted from something that, of all people, C.S. Lewis once said. It's not that these things have been tried and found wanting. It's that they've been found difficult and left untried. And I've written that down exactly. Because <laughs> I think that is, it's the perfect way to describe it. It really is. And the whole chapter that you've done on learning to listen, I think, is crucial to, to so many conversations that we need to be having in society. Um, to the point where I just I hope politicians do read your book because because I've made the point numerous times on this podcast that I come from Kent I'm, I'm in Westminster a lot because of what I do in Leap UK the conversations that go on here in Kent are very different to what happened in Westminster the two mm. don't always translate that well mm. but there's there can be a real bubble around it and there's a brilliant part of the chapter in learning to listen where you address um use in gangs and a lot of people will just see that as the problem you know it's gang culture but you really do manage to put a good perspective on this that quite often gang culture isn't there because of a sense of territorial battle or this that and the other it can often be a sense of self-preservation and protection and i think that definitely needs to be picked up upon more um, have you seen that much within your role within the police of communities forming that may be considered the other those ones over there the bad guys when it's just they're just a bit misunderstood and there for their own protection uh, i mean i think you know in broad terms crime is only ever a symptom um uh, uh, and yes it tends to be the thing that we focus on relentlessly um and so membership of a a gang is presented as evidence of criminality. Whereas actually in a number of cases, it's evidence of something completely different. Um, it, it might be a consequence of, of a young person feeling afraid. Um, they might have no intention or desire to get involved in criminality, but, but they feel that they will be safer by being in a gang than not being in a gang. So fear is one reason. Uh, Secondly, uh, and we see this particularly in, in the sort of county lines environment with drugs, um, people are joining gangs because of coercion. They're actually being threatened um, uh, and in many cases threatened with really serious harm unless they're willing to carry this package of drugs or to deliver that weapon or act as a runner for 
such and such a senior gang member. So there's fear, there's coercion. I, I think probably though the deepest reason of all, John Carnican, who's one of the co-founders um, of uh, the Violence Reduction Unit in Scotland and one of my real sort of professional and personal heroes, he talks about the fact that human beings are born connected. I mean, we were born literally, umbilically connected. Um, and that the problem occurs in life when disconnection happens. So many of us are just looking for a place to call home. We're just looking for somewhere to belong. Um, and so many of the kids who end up in gangs actually in a remarkably similar way to some of the young men and women who end up being radicalised and become involved in terrorist activity. So many of them come from fractured and fragmented home environments and they join a gang or they join a cause in search of acceptance, in search of a place to call home and to belong. And so before we begin to define this 15-year-old kid by his criminal behaviour, and by his membership of such and such a gang, we absolutely have a responsibility to try to understand how he ended up there in the first place. And I'll be really clear, in no way am I seeking to excuse criminal behavior. Um, you know, before anyone sort of misquotes or misrepresents me, um, I'm not seeking to excuse criminal behavior in any way, shape or form. Those who, commit criminal acts are responsible for what they've done and they will have to face the consequences of what they've done. So I'm not excusing it, but what I am trying to do is understand it and to be able to explain it. Um, uh, another of my great heroes who I reference in the book, a wonderful man called Erwin James, who served time in prison. Um, he has this wonderful phrase that he uses. He talks about the fact that understanding is not the same as excusing. So when we look at 15-year-old gang member, let's call him Billy Smith, that's the name I use in the book, not a, not a real person, but he's, he's sort of illustrative of so many of the boys and young men I met along the way. I'm not going to excuse anything that Billy has done, his drug dealing or his use of weapons or the fact that ultimately he ended up taking someone else's life. I'm not going to excuse any of that. Billy's got to face the consequences of it. But I am trying to understand it because it's only in trying to understand it that we've got any chance of stopping it happening again in the future. It does come across in the book that you are on a big mission of fact-finding to find out the root causes and, and what's going on. Um, you certainly draw upon austerity and lack of opportunity as, as a big driving force of, of youth finance as well. But if you if you come across any opposition to that, yeah, you, you, you caveat what you just said, the fact that you know, you're not making any excuses for criminal behaviour. But... Have you come across attitudes that are very much for law and order and don't want to see the other side of it? They just focus on the crime that's in front of them. Yeah, all over the place. And, you know, and I'll be clear, I'm pro law and order. I mean, I, I was a, an officer of the law for more than 25 years. Absolutely. We need we need the rule of law. We need boundaries in place for, for a, a democratic society to be able to function. Uh, and we need for there to be consequences when people step over those boundaries. Um, I think the problem comes when we limit our response to that only. Um, so, so we define youth violence as a crime problem. 
and, and towards the end of the book, I use this example. I, I pick up this, this imaginary young man called Billy Smith, age 16 or 17, and he's arrested at the scene of a fatal stabbing. And, you know, let's get ahead of ourselves. He's guilty of the crime. And what we do is we define it as a crime problem. Billy was a member of a gang. He was dealing drugs. The person he killed was a criminal rival. Uh, and, you know, the following day, in as much as the media are paying any attention and in as much as it's spoken about at all on the floor of the House of Commons, the tendency is for all of the conversation to be about enforcement. So we hear these repeated calls for more stop and search. We hear these repeated calls for tougher sentences for those caught carrying knives. We absolutely hear the repetition of the lock them up and throw away the key. Um, that's the only way to respond to these scum. You know, I'm, I'm kind of resorting to the vernacular, but you, you, you see what I mean. We, we kind of, once again, we, we define people by their behaviour and the worst forms of their behaviour. And in the short term, of course it's a crime problem and of course it's a police responsibility. Highly dangerous young men carrying knives out on the streets are absolutely a, a policing and crime problem. But, at the risk of repeating myself, if we actually want to do anything about it in the longer term, we need to understand why Billy was there dealing drugs and carrying a knife in the first place. And we begin to discover that one of the reasons, at least, was that Billy didn't have a job and had no prospect of getting a job. Well, that's an economic problem, not a crime problem. But then we look deeper still and we find, well, the reason he's not got a job is because he's got no qualifications. And he spent much of his teenage life excluded from school, from mainstream education. Well, that's an education problem. We dig deeper still and we look at the neighbourhood and the community that he grew up in. Uh, primarily low-income households, low-aspiration households, generational worklessness. Well, that's a much broader societal problem. And then we get to the end point of our journey, which is Billy's front door and we look behind it, and that's where we find the violence. The violence that he's been experiencing and exposed to, not just from the day he was born, but from before he was born, you know, whilst he was still a baby in the womb. And I, I just think we've got to be prepared to make this journey from the scene of the crime all the way back to the scene of his home life, to try to understand what's really going on to try to understand how he ended up where he ended up, to try to understand what it is that we need to do to stop his younger brother following the same path and to stop the next generation of the family and the family living down the road. Um, but it's difficult and it takes time and it's expensive and so often it's easier not to do it. The other thing, of course, is that if you define it as a crime problem, then you make it a police problem, and then you can blame the police when it doesn't get fixed. I was going to say, we, we do these little quote videos to go alongside this podcast, and I'm going to cue you up. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to cue you up because there's a great line in the book. Uh, I'm going to hopefully kind of nudge you, see if you get it, but nothing stops a bullet. Nothing stops a bullet like a job. Perfect. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's, like, it's just so right. It's about, you know, again... You you've clearly make the point in the book as well of how there's been certain vulnerable demographics that you've I don't want to I don't want to say this but befriended I think that's almost a patronising term but you you've gone in there and sought out a community relationship to the point where yeah you 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 reference pills pills principles quite quite often throughout the book so there's certain times that you've seen that there are demographics that aren't particularly on side with with community policing but you've sought out ways of building bridges and making sure that instead of seeing you as a threat that you're there as a as a presence and as a as a point of the a community as well how did you find that throughout your career of trying to build those bridges and make sure that you weren't seen as a layer of persecution well it's i listen i i I'm still learning in the 51st year of my life, but I, I think one of the great dying arts of the 21st century um, is the ability to listen. You know, my, my mum and dad always taught me when I was growing up, you've got two ears and one mouth and they're to be used in those proportions. Um, and I, I think there is a real need in society to, to rediscover the ability to listen. Uh, to, I, you know, I often say that listening is the beginning of hearing and hearing is the beginning of understanding and understanding is the beginning of change. So whether it's trying to listen to the perspectives of the black community about stop and search or about knife crime, whether it's trying to listen to the perspectives of the Muslim community about the global terrorist threat and the impact that it has on their own sense and perception of vulnerability, whether it's listening to the LGBTQ community um, about their experience of hate crime, whether it's just about listening to the experience of the person who lives on the other side of the road, who has lived a different kind of life to you and me. Um, I suppose I've always tried to listen. Um, I suppose I'm still trying to listen now. Uh, and I suppose that so much of the content of the book uh, is the product the consequence of having tried to hear and understand what people who really understand uh, are trying to teach me? I think I think it comes across that you're a communicator because you did do jobs as a negotiator as well, didn't you, within this? And I was going to tell you about a coincidence that happened as I was reading the book. So as I was finishing the book on the 30th of April, 
um, you draw upon a, an experience that happened in Soho where a LGBT pub got bombed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so not only did I read that on that very night, but on the exact moment that I read that chapter, my partner was on the sofa, I read a Facebook post from my hairdresser uh, who drew the example he should have been going to that pub that very night. Mm. And I was reading that chapter as that all happened. So I was like, well, that's, mm. that's just a massive coincidence. But what was it like being a negotiator to speak to people that are, you know, using the metaphor, talking people off a ledge? That, that must have been a very stressful part of the job. Well, sometimes it was quite literally talking people off of a ledge. I mean, it was one of the greatest privileges of my working life. Uh, and one of the things I, I hope appropriately I'm, I'm most proud of having done. Um, you know, the full title for the role is uh, you're a police hostage and crisis negotiator. Um, and and there's, there's kind of there's a hint of glamour in the title. Um, you know, we immediately start thinking about the kind of the Hollywood hostage scenario, the dog day afternoon, bank robbery gone wrong, that kind of thing. And of course, the reality is, is those things are incredibly rare. Um, police negotiation isn't that often about crime. It's much more often about crisis. Uh, and I would say the vast majority of the call outs that I attended, you, you're being called out to people who are right on the very edge, uh, both metaphorically and literally. You know, whether they're standing on the edge of an ice cold pond in the middle of Hampstead Heath in the middle of the night, or standing in a three inch wide window ledge on the 17th floor of a block of flats, um, or any number of a thousand other places. Um, And the privilege is is to try to help them back from the edge. And I say in the book, you know, in those circumstances, what, what, what do I have to offer someone in that situation? Well, well, all I have is my humanity and my kindness and my capacity to listen. Um, you know, y- you might think uh, that police negotiators are, are selected on their ability or on the basis of their ability to talk to people, um, to solve problems. Um, and to some extent, that would be true. Of course, talking is important. But actually, the much more important thing is the ability to listen. Uh, and what you find in those places at the edge of life is people with these extraordinary, agonising, haunting stories to tell, who so often just want to be heard, who want to know that there's somebody somewhere out there who cares about them and what happens to them. Um, and one of the most extraordinary things in the world is when you can hold out a hand and help them back from the edge. Do you think that's why you're so interested in the national and international overview of this as well? Because you have dealt with people individually, get into the root causes of why they're experiencing the, the absolute turbulence that they are. Do you think that lends itself to what you do now of looking at things from a from a macro level? That's a really good question. Uh, I mean, I think fundamentally the the biggest issues of all in the world, be they political or geopolitical or economic or, you know, uh, we're in the midst of a health pandemic. You know, you, you can describe them in massively big picture terms, but at the end of the day, it all comes down to, they all come down to people, individuals, 
you and me, whether we're falling out because we voted leave or remain, whether we're falling out because we're in competition for the same job, um, whether we're falling out because, I mean, who knows, you know, any one of a thousand differences that we find between us. Um, but, you know, to quote the extraordinary Joe Cox, uh, the MP who was murdered, we, we have so much more in common than that which divides us. So I, I, the biggest issues in the planet at the end come down to the behaviour and the choices of individual human beings. Uh, and that, for me, is how I make sense of the world, but also it's how I try to engage with the world. Um, the big stuff I find too overwhelming. So let's let's just start by you and me having a conversation. And, and, it, and I know I'm going to learn something. It definitely runs throughout the book, the, the theme that you do want to get to to the bottom of what's going on in people's lives. And it certainly comes across in the chapter that you've done about drugs because... You, you address county lines, you address knife crime in an, in another chapter. And again, going back to our theme of everything linking up, knife crime, drugs, those chapters definitely do correlate. So what experience have you had within people that have been addicted? You know, you, we've mentioned alcohol, that chances are people are self-medicating. Is that presumably what you found as well with people that have got drug addiction? Yeah, writing writing the drugs chapter was was a real education for me. Actually, um, I, I hope some of that comes through. You know, when I started out with the book, there, there were some of the chapters that I had a degree of specific expertise in. So, domestic violence and knife crime would be two of them, and then there were other chapters where my policing experience was more that of a generalist, um, and drugs would certainly be one of those. Uh, and I I had to challenge myself on some of the things that I was writing about. So, for example, in the first draft of the book, I was really clumsy and casual in my use of the word junkie. And actually, it was Neil Woods who called me up on it, um, quite rightly. I asked him to read an earlier draft. And he said, you need to be really careful with your language. Uh, and I realised that throughout my 25-and-a-half-year career, I'd use the term almost without thinking. I'd use the term junkie. Uh, and I'd done exactly what it is that I'm trying to caution myself and others against doing. I, I'd define people by their behaviour. I'd define people by their life choices. And I'd forgotten some of their humanity as a consequence. Because, you see, the thing is, junkies are easy to despise. Hmm. It's, it's just a throwaway term, throwaway derogatory term. Um, if I can get beyond the description of their behaviour and look at the person and ask, hang on, why is it that they started injecting or smoking or whatever it was in the first place? Uh, and that's the way that you then begin to get to the heart of their story. And, um, you know, so many people who are taking class A drugs are doing so as a response to childhood and adolescent trauma. Um, and you begin to think, there but for the grace of God go I. And it certainly relates to what we've been saying throughout the whole theme of this conversation, that domestic violence plays a part. If if these people have come from a place of childhood trauma, then self-medication certainly plays a part. But that also lends itself to the fact that supply chains have changed as well in the way that people are obtaining drugs. 
presumably you would have seen the evolution of what we now call county lines and the fact that there is a diversification in how the drug trade works. What's it been like from your innermost perspective of seeing how those links evolve and change and, and evade current methods of, of capture? Well, I mean, I've, I've been retired two years and, and I've been away from operational duties for about seven years since since I got sick. Um, so I, I'm not kind of bang up to date on, on all of the sort of the latest techniques. I, I, I mean, I think it's it's interesting that it, it, at its heart, in its essence, the criminality doesn't change. Um, it's just the means of delivery that change. So, you know, back in the day when I started out, um, you know, uh, you could walk into a phone box and find a dealer's phone number stuck on the side there. You know, that was in, in the days of landlines. And then, you know, we moved off landlines and onto mobiles. And then we moved off mobiles and online. And, uh, but, but at the heart of it all is, is the same form of criminality, which is driven by profit and greed seeking to exploit um, the most vulnerable in society. So I remember as a uniform inspector in West London, when I first came across in sort of first-hand terms, the, this whole idea of cuckooing. Um, I mean, we didn't call it that then. We didn't have a word for it back then. Um, but, but, you know, really vulnerable residents who'd been assessed by the local authority as capable of independent living. And in a kind of fair and decent world, that was probably true. But, but in an unfair world inhabited by exploiters, you know, the dealers just moved into their flats and turned their flats into crack dens. Um, and, and suddenly these incredibly vulnerable people were just pushed even closer to the edge of society. And what would happen is that we'd, we'd become aware of it and we'd do the right thing and we'd raid the address, but the dealers were very rarely there and, and the users who in their own way were, were victims too, you know, they picked up a, another fine and maybe a very small custodial sentence. Um, but we did nothing really to fix the problem because they all just moved into the next flat down the hallway. Uh, and so the cycle began again. So, uh, so I, I think there are some elements of criminality that are as old as time. You know, people will try to make a profit and people will exploit the vulnerable. And, and County Lines is just one of the most recent iterations of that. Um, you know, you've got men of extraordinary violence prepared to exploit really vulnerable teenage kids um, and use threats and coercion in order to do so. Um, and policing and law enforcement is constantly having to adapt um, to, to the way in which the crime is committed but the crime itself is is as old as time. There's so many lines that I've got double un underlined to draw upon. <laughs> that was one of them. I was frantically nodding at you then because you, you do say in the book that, yeah, you didn't have a name for cuckooing, but now, you know, it's most people are aware of it. Even, even my in-laws, I think, I know what cuckooing is. And you also say in the book that throughout your career, you, know, you saw that the police service threw everything they could at the drug trade, but chances are they didn't do much to win at it and I'm not going to put you on the spot but what can we do 
to ingratiate a conversation between Westminster, the general public and the media about more sensible ways of getting around addiction and the drug trade in general? Well, the starting point for me is to say, and again, it's there in the book, but, you know, politicians and others declared the war on drugs as long ago as the 1960s. And we've been losing it ever since. Uh, and I think I, if I'm honest, I see that with greater clarity now as a retired officer looking back than I did as a serving officer in the thick of it, in the midst of it. Um, and, and of course, there are all sorts of different schools of thoughts, you, you know, ranging from all out legalisation to, you know, one step along decriminalisation um, to those at the other end of the spectrum who will advocate just for ever greater enforcement and ever tougher sentences. Uh, and so, you've, you know, you've got a full range of options that are available to us and, and a full range of kind of ideological beliefs as well as sort of practical applications of that belief. Um, I think the only thing that absolutely everybody agrees on is that what we're doing at the moment isn't working. I mean, it just isn't working. However you look at it, however you measure it, um, it just isn't working. And so this is the one chapter in the book where I kind of get to the end of it and say that I think we need a royal commission. Um, uh, uh, and, I, you know, not as an end in itself, but, but as, as a means of trying to say to everybody, just stop for a moment. What we're doing at the moment isn't working. We need to have a proper, grown-up, adult, uncomfortable, um, unsettling conversation about what's really happening out there and about what we really need to do about it. Because unequivocally, we are spending billions of pounds and we are filling the prisons to overflowing and we are doing almost nothing to disrupt the flow and supply of drugs. Mm. Um, uh, and so at the very least, we've got to accept that what we're doing isn't working. And another of the things I've sort of learned from Neil and kind of adopted as my own, just the fact that so much of our drugs policy in this country is based on ideology and not on evidence. Mm. And, and for me, a royal commission would be a means of getting the evidence out there, of actually presenting people with some really stark realities uh, and then some really stark choices. What we can't do, though, is just keep keep on going the way we are. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, is what can the evidence tell us? And surely you'd like to think that Westminster and the media... I think the media have gotten better. I think there, are, there there's a lot more... In the 10 years I've been doing this, a lot more nuance now. But it still does get down to what you've drawn upon the book in many different themes that law and order quite often gets put through the politician's funnel. And when that does happen, we don't always have the best basis of conversation, do we? Mm. And no, in absolutely. The the very final chapter you've got in the book is, is genuinely fascinating because you've got... Well, it's actually two chapters that kind of correlate, but you've got one which is policing in the 2020, which, how do you see that? How How much has the job evolved since you started doing it, what was it, 25 years ago? Nearly 30 years ago that I joined, wow. uh, 1992, I started. Um, I mean, in some senses, the job has changed beyond recognition. You know, the global movement of populations, um, 
the spectacular advances in technology. Um, you know, there's, there's there's so much that has changed in terms of the context, and as we were alluding to earlier, in terms of the way in which crime is committed. Actually, in the sense, though, at its heart, policing hasn't changed at all. The, the job is still the one that I described to you right at the start of our conversation. You know, the job is still to save people's lives and it's still to protect vulnerable people and confront dangerous people. That's that's the heart and soul of what policing has always been and, and I hope always will be. What What we have seen undeniably and unequivocally over the last 10 years is is the decimation of policing in this country as a consequence of conscious, deliberate political choice. Um, the National Audit Office make, make the point that between 2010 and 2018, we lost 44,000 police officers and staff in England and Wales alone. You know, we often, there's, uh, often you'll hear people talking about the, the figure of 21,000 police officers that were cut, and that's absolutely right and accurate. But, but sometimes we lose sight of more than double that number who've gone in, in total. And we're talking here about uniform community support officers. We're talking about intelligence analysts. We're talking about critical operational support staff. But in, in England and Wales, over the course of eight years, we lost 44,000 people. And I mean, that's a telephone number. And, and we can't pretend that it's possible for a, a critical frontline public service to carry on with those kinds of losses as if nothing has changed. Um, and of course, it wasn't just the numbers that we lost, it was the experience that we lost. And we we lost hundreds of police stations and we lost dogs and horses and helicopters and um, we lost so much of the infrastructure of policing in this country. We lost so much of the um, investment in neighbourhood policing, which is the critical point at which policing and communities meet and cooperate and collaborate um, to solve the problems that are happening in, in the streets where you live and I work. Um, we have lost so much over the course of the last 10 years. Um, and that's made an already incredibly difficult job more difficult still. Um, so we are at the point now where there is an urgent and overwhelming need for reinvestment in frontline policing. Um, but not just in policing, in every other part of the public sector as well. You know, what you hear me saying about policing, you'll hear doctors saying about the NHS, you'll hear teachers saying about schools, you'll hear anyone, you know, lawyers talking about the criminal justice system. You know, it, it, austerity was a conscious choice um, and the consequences of it have been desperately damaging for communities. And of course, the cost of it has been greatest for those least able to bear it. And presumably within those numbers lost as well, we've lost diversity and experience, which is, I'd imagine, pretty crucial to both society and the police force. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know what the diversity breakdown is. Um, overwhelmingly, though, we've lost experience. And interestingly, you know, much play has been made, uh, you know, of the announcement that the government made last year that they're going to recruit 20,000 more police officers. Um, and, and listen, the headline is welcome. You know, I'm one of those who's been calling for years for reinvestment in, in frontline policing. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to dismiss the offer, but, but, but neither should we um, 
fail to see what's happened over the last 10 years. Even if we were to add those 20,000, um, they still wouldn't replace the number cut since 2010. And they wouldn't get anywhere close to the, the larger 44,000 officers and staff combined. Also, though, you can bring in 20,000 new people and they're starting from scratch in terms of experience. And what we've lost is years and years and years and years of frontline operational experience, years and years of relationships that have been built with communities. And you learn policing by doing policing. Mm. Even if we got 20,000 in tomorrow, and of course that's impossible, it would still take years to rebuild the experience lost. And to conclude on your conclusion chapter, you, you do brilliantly make the point as violent crime rises, so does the cost of society. So is it a case that if we invest now, it actually saves the country money down the line? One thousand percent. You know, particularly at the kind of height of austerity, um, you know, whenever there was a call for an invest call for investment, um, the, the political response often was, we can't afford to do that, to which my instinctive response was then and is so even more now, we can't afford not to. Because the extraordinary thing is, in the end, the cost of getting stuff wrong ends up being far higher than the cost of getting it right. So that's just the perfect point to end on. And I genuinely can't praise you enough for the book. It is just in brilliant. It is so well done. It gets it across in in layman's terms, but also in terms that I'd imagine higher ups, academics, and and brainy people can understand as well. Um, <laughs> so to really put you on the spot now, we're going to conclude. And you have got the reins. You're in charge of everything. You're, you know, I vote for you, Prime Minister. What do you do? What is your first step tomorrow to do something about everything we've just been speaking about? So if I was to start with, with a particular crime, so I, again, I've said in the past, if, if any Prime Minister or Home Secretary were, were ever to say to me, John, on, on the basis of all of your years in policing, what do you think that we should concentrate on first before anything else? Without hesitation, without equivocation, I would say domestic violence. Um, because for me, that lies at the heart, at the root of so many of the other problems that we encounter as a society. You know, so many people who end up with alcohol or drug problems have grown up either victims of or witnesses to domestic violence. So many of the young men who end up involved in violence themselves grew up in violent homes. I mean, it's just, it's as clear as day to me. Um, so if I'm in charge, that's that's the, the issue that I would focus on first. But... but um, if I was to pick up those those four themes from the conclusion of the book, four sort of points of principle, that the four things that we need to challenge are that it's going to take too long, that it's going to cost too much, that it's going to be too difficult, and that, to be honest, it doesn't really happen to people like us. Those are the four things that we've got to challenge and confront. We've got to be prepared to give our lifetimes to fixing these things. We've got to be prepared to spend money understanding that we'll end up spending more if we get it wrong. And we need to be brave enough to be prepared to take on the really difficult, wicked problems that we face as a society, recognising that at the heart of all of them are human beings.
and the fact that remains that I am still my brother's keeper, my sister's too. Absolutely perfect. John Southern, thank you so much for joining us on this. You have been, well, I think mind blown. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. And while I do thank yous, of course, I've got to thank all the team. So Nikki, Tristan, John, the producers of this show, we could not do it without them. Thank you to My Name is Ad for the artwork. Thank you to Johnny Borrell for our theme music. And thank you for John Sutherland for speaking to us and giving such a beautiful account on that. And make sure you check out his book. Please do both his books. So Crossing the Line, Lessons from a Life on Duty, and also his previous book, Blue. And I'm going to see you next time. Make sure you keep listening, subscribing and doing all what you do. Thank you to sharing us around as well because that always helps. So until next time, bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.